Hey everyone, it's Jacob here. Welcome back to another episode of the Law of Code podcast. This is the show covering the legal side of crypto, NFTs, DAOs, and any other blockchain-related innovation. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. My guest today is Chris Duncan. Chris is counsel in Kerry Olson's Cayman Islands office, where he leads their fintech and crypto group across both the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands, working with some of the largest projects in the crypto space on structuring and regulatory matters, including licensing applications and regulatory investigations. Chris has been recognized in the Chambers and Partners FinTech Guide as a leading individual. In addition, Chris advises high net worth and ultra high net worth clients on wealth structuring with a particular focus on crypto and tech founders. This conversation will touch on all things Cayman and BVI crypto law. And we'll talk about Guernsey trusts offshore generally. I think this will be a really, really interesting conversation for anyone looking to learn a bit more about that. Thank you, Chris, for joining me today. No, thank you for having me. I'm a long time listener. So it's slightly surreal to be on. Well, I hope it's as fun to be on as it is to listen. <laughs> uh, let's start with your Genesis block. And we were talking about this beforehand, but could you describe where and when you were first introduced to crypto and what your initial thoughts were? Yeah, so my one's interesting, I think, in that I actually can't remember how I first heard about Bitcoin or why I started buying it. I can remember first buying it. And so I was buying Bitcoin on localbitcoins.com, which is a very old school peer-to-peer platform, which actually has been recently shut down. And that was, I think, end of 2013, start of 2014. So actually very good timing post the first bull market. I think that was about, I don't know, 150, 200 dollars at the time. And I think a friend of mine in Australia had told me, hey, there's this thing called Bitcoin, you should start buying it. Here's how you do it. And I'm pretty sure I didn't know why I was doing it or what it really was. <laughs> so yes. And then I just sort of that sort of built up a bit of stash and then saw Ethereum come along. I think I got into Ethereum at about $10 and then panicked when it went to $6 and sold for my whole position. So it's so I've been around in the space for a while. But yeah, I'm not a hundred percent sure why I actually got in. And I certainly didn't understand Bitcoin then. And I want to talk about the BVI VASP Act. But before we get into that, let's talk about your practice and what you do. Sure. So, I mean, we do within our practice, obviously, Cayman and BVI, but we have everything from advising centralized exchanges on regulatory matters and helping them get approval under the VASP regime in Cayman and BVI now as well, VCs, market makers in the space, and then everything right through to startups, foundations, DAOs, you know, DeFi projects. So it's a lot of work around structuring. What's the right legal structure for a particular project? If there's a token, how do they do that? What are the regulatory implications of the things they might want to do? And so that's the large part of the practice for me. And then I have a segment which is regulatory investigation work for usually regulated businesses or businesses that should be regulated and maybe aren't. And so in a former life, I used to be a litigator and did a lot of work with regulatory investigations. And so naturally doing a lot of work with crypto where there tends to be businesses and people subject to regulatory scrutiny, I guess I'm well equipped to handle that. So I have a few ongoing matters involving fairly large centralized exchanges. Where, so helping them um, not necessarily defend 
enforcement actions, but you know, navigate some potential enforcement actions. And would those are there enforcement actions occurring in the Caymans in BVI? Yeah, so BVI obviously it's only, and we I'm sure we'll come on to this. They've only just recently introduced their virtual assets regime. Caymans had it since sort of 2020, and so I think. There are now, there was a lot of businesses that were operating from Cayman pre the virtual assets regime. Some of those stopped, some of those applied for the, the requisite registrations, and some of them didn't do those things. And so it's, I think it's for those, it's you know, people that are sort of advertising the fact that they might be running an exchange from Cayman. Someone looks and says, hey, you say you're running an exchange, but you're not regulated. How are you doing that? But it, yeah, so that's sort of the high level of the Cayman framework. Thank you. And one thing I wanted to click on was who falls in the scope of a virtual asset service provider. Could you describe the entities there? Is it issuers of tokens, exchanges, custodial exchanges versus non like DEXs? Where where do you draw the line there? Yeah. So basically this act applies to virtual asset services provided in or from within Cayman. So if I want to allow Cayman customers of my Dubai exchange. I would be offering those services within Cayman. And so technically I would need to be regulated. The other sort of component of that is from within. And so if you have a Cayman company operating a centralized exchange or a custody business, then you're subject to the regime if you're providing the relevant services. And so if you're providing exchange service, custody, thing, issuing a token, things like that. So it's the entities it applies to all the sort of legal persons that applies to. And then it's if you are subject to the act because you're from, you know, doing it here or from within Cayman, then you look to, you know, is my particular service regulated? And I think you sort of mentioned then centralized and decentralized exchanges. The Cayman regime actually specifically references decentralized exchanges, but then goes on to curiously to define it as needing to be custodial. And so anyone listening to this will know that I think no decentralized exchanges are custodial. They're all non-custodial. So it's and that's untested, but it's not clear what that means vis-a-vis -a, -vis a decentralized exchange operating from Cayman. I think my view probably is that you could be outside the virtual asset trading platform, which is where it's specifically mentioned, but still providing an exchange service if you have a DEX protocol owned and operated from Cayman. I guess worth touching on the fact that you know some DEX protocols are completely live and in the wild. No one has upgraded or admin keys, no one can control it, no one can really turn the lights off. Others are much more centralized in that they operate in a permissionless smart contract way, but someone might be in Cayman with the admin keys and so could unilaterally upgrade or turn it off or whatever. And so in that scenario, I think there's a greater likelihood that person would be considered a VASP for Cayman's framework. As I say, untested, but that's sort of my, I guess, my view at a high level. That's very helpful. And so registration process is an interesting one. We've seen Gary Gensler's famous words of come in and register. Yeah, yeah come, come in. Right. And, and in Canada, we had something similar in March 2021, where after that, they actually worked with exchanges or, or any entities that came in and found a framework and a path forward. For most of them, they gave undertakings, they became restricted dealers or applied. What does the registration process look like in the Caymans under this act? Yeah, so it's sort of in a way fairly straightforward. There's an application form. You have to fill out a whole lot of data and then you have to put with your application a whole lot of supporting material, business plan, AML policy, KYC policy, 
cybersecurity policy, risk management, like a whole lot of stuff you would expect a regulated business to need. And so it's quite a lot of information to supply, but the process is very much, you need typically need a Cayman entity. So you would incorporate a Cayman company, which is very easy. And then you would put together this application pack and then you submit it to the regulator. And then they have, it seems, we obviously don't, you know, don't see exactly how things work at the regulator, but it seems like they have a sort of two-stage process where they very much focus on the people behind the applicant. So, you know, the shareholders of the company, the directors of the company, you know, getting their KYC, getting their references, getting their CVs, checking their personal referees, things like that. And then once that's all complete, then they look at the substance of the application. Okay. So it sounds like it's a very streamlined process. Is there much back and forth between the regulators pushing back on, well, we will allow you to do this as long as you hit certain criteria, things like staking, are those discussed? Yeah. So staking, not so much. The Cayman regime came in pre-DeFi, more or less, pre-staking. So it's none of that is really mentioned. I mean, it tends to be quite a bit of back and forth. Some of that is, hey, you have a policy, but it doesn't say what you would do in this scenario. It doesn't cover this thing we would like you to be thinking about. But th- there's definitely a bit of back and forth. And then some of that will come down to the substance of the business, because obviously, if you have, you know, if you're applying as a centralized exchange, you have custody. So they'll be pretty focused on you know, the safeguards for custody, particularly now after FTX. If it's a OTC broker, then, you know, they have a different, you know, it's a different thing. They might not necessarily have custody of client assets for any period of time. And so it, it really depends. We've actually got one, a pretty novel one at the moment, which I checked with the clients that I could speak about here, where we're, I think it's going to be the first permissioned decentralized exchange in a regulated way if it goes through. So that's sort of pending which for a client called Move, You might've seen, there's been some publicity on it recently, but that they're effectively using embedded KYC and AML at the protocol level or at blockchain level to So users would have to go through a process, be screened, make sure there's no illicit actors, things like that. And then they can use it in the way you normally could use it, you know, in a non-custodial way, peer-to-peer. So that one will be interesting when we get to the sort of substance phase to see how, to see what a regulator thinks about that, because it's, to my mind, sort of never been done before. That's very interesting. And I think so many people have come to the realization that it's difficult for DeFi to exist in a vacuum and having a sandbox that you can play in, but guardrails on the entry into that sandbox sounds like something that regulators at least will be much more likely to get behind whether or not it's necessary i don't know what the future will look like but i think that's a very interesting approach to take yeah no it's super interesting and i mean it's sort of the best of both worlds i mean this is what we've said to the regulator which i truly believe is that you get the benefit of a sort of regulated platform you've covered kyc you've covered aml you've hopefully eliminated the sanction risks all those things but it's non-custodial and so the risk of an FTX type blow up doesn't exist in Cayman for that because there's not a Cayman company that's sitting on $15 billion of customer assets that blows up. It's not that. And so, yeah, obviously, I would say this, but it makes sense to me. And it's probably business, you know, regulators should and will want to see. And I think that, I mean, I've seen definitely seen chatter about centralized exchanges and a drive maybe to separating out the custody piece to align more with sort of TradFi in that respect. And I think we'll get back to Caymans and we'll talk about foundation foundations and DAOs, but I'd love to turn now to the BVI VASP Act. It's in force as of February 1st, 2023. I was following your Twitter pretty closely to to keep an eye on this. So thank you for the updates there. Could you describe the difference between the BVI Act and the Cayman Act? 
Yeah, so I mean, they're very similar. So they use the same definition of a virtual asset. The virtual asset services, they sort of use different terminology here and there, but it's broadly the same. It broadly applies to centralized activities. There's some sort of carve-outs for if you sell infrastructure or software, but you don't actually operate that, then that's sort of out. I mean, the main difference, and there's nuances in terms of the registration process and requirements and things, but the main difference is that it doesn't regulate issuance of tokens, of an entity's own tokens. So there's one of the services that is regulated is like financial services related to an issuance. And so I guess in theory, a BVI company, if it wanted to be like a platform for ICOs, that's probably regulated. But if I have a BVI company and I mint a token from my BVI company and I want to sell that, that in itself is not covered by the BVI regime, which is, I guess, good for us and BVI lawyers, because one of the things that a lot of people had, you know, in terms of legal structures for token offerings and things was to use a BVI company because there was no virtual assets regime. So it was a pretty low friction way of doing it. Even now with the virtual assets regime, that sort of model seems to still be in play. And so can we talk about that for a second? I know that the offshore structuring when it comes to the interplay between the foundation and the token issuer is an important dynamic and one that I'm sure you've spent a lot of time dealing with and advising on. Could you describe what the most common form of issuance and foundation to sort of shepherd the project forward looks like and some key considerations there for people who might be considering it? Yeah, there's a variety of structures and we get a lot of clients that come to us looking at hey, we're thinking about Cayman or we think about other places and trying to work out what's the best fit. I mean, the most common one that we've seen to date is tends to be a Cayman Foundation company at sort of the top of the, stru- the offshore structure. So that's a, I guess, like a C-corp corporate entity has separate legal personality. And the main difference or one of the main differences is it can be ownerless. So it doesn't need to have any shareholders. And so in a crypto context, you end up usually with a foundation that will have stated purposes as supporting the Jacob Robinson protocol or ecosystem or something like that. And so that will be its function to use its capital to support the growth of some project or some protocol or or what have you. So that's the sort of Cayman piece. And people like that foundation because of the sort of flexibility it gives you and things like that. And you can also, it has functions like trusts as well. So you can build in control mechanisms outside of directors. And so you could, in theory, have what's called a supervisor that has control powers of a foundation, but you could also have token holders or or a DAO at large. So there's quite a lot of interesting ways you can use a foundation to work in connection with, say, you know, governance token holders. So that's the, the Cayman side. And then the reason there tends to be a BVI element is, to a point I mentioned before, Cayman regulates public token sales. And so there's a sort of a carve out for private sales. And so a Cayman foundation or a Cayman company could, in theory, do like a, a SAF, like a simple agreement for future tokens in a private way to a small group of investors. That's sort of okay. But if it wanted to do a public distribution, that would be in theory regulated. And so typically the structure has been, and I guess still is now, is to have a subsidiary of the foundation, usually in the BVI, but it could be anywhere else really that sort of it works from a regulatory perspective. And then that would be usually with a purpose or intended purpose at least of being the issuer for the project, just because otherwise it would cause some regulatory issues for the Cayman Foundation if it wanted to issue the tokens, whereas the BVI company wouldn't encounter those same issues. And I find it so interesting that the Cayman Foundation itself can be ownerless and this foundation sits on its own. And if there are issues relating to that, they're limited to that foundation. Yeah, there's still a board of directors. So in a lot of ways, it's similar to a company and you can actually have shareholders. They call them members in Cayman, but they 
if you do, they only have voting rights, not economic rights. And in a crypto context, you don't typically see any members. It tends to be ownerless. And I think the reason why that fits quite nicely, particularly with sort of decentralized projects and things, is if you just have a traditional entity that has shareholders and it owns a protocol or has a DAO treasury, people might say, well, yeah, this entity holds this treasury for the DAO, but look, people own that. They're shareholders, whereas in a, say, a foundation, Cayman or other places, the directors have to use that treasury to further the purposes of the foundation. They can't dividend it out to the team and, I guess, limits potential rugging by uh, by teams. Interesting. I hadn't thought of it from that angle, right? Because you have this ownerless foundation with a separate legal personality, but there's still these supervisory or advisory committees that operate with a fiduciary duty, I assume, to the foundation. Yes, yeah, so you can structure it in a few ways. I mean, the supervisor, if you don't have any shareholders, you you must have a supervisor and they're effectively in lieu of the shareholders. So someone to hold the directors to account. They can have a very expansive role or a pretty narrow role of just being entitled to information and attending meetings and voting in those meetings. Or they can have powers to change directors. They can have all sorts of other powers. And then you can have, in addition, you could have an advisory committee or a council or stewards or whatever you want to call them which could be another group of people that have different powers. So, you know, they could hold powers to change directors and change supervisors, or they could hold the power to veto transactions over a certain threshold or direct directors to do something, you know, all sorts of things. And so one of the sort of really interesting things about foundation model, particularly with sort of DAOs and things, is thinking through governance and where will the ultimate control sit and you know, what happens if the token holders of a DAO vote to do X and they need the foundation to implement that. Is it automatically binding on directors? Should it be advisory? Should you know, how should that relationship operate? And sort of the pros and cons of each of those sort of ways of doing it. It must have been. It must be fascinating setting these up and thinking of the interplay and the governance that you mentioned between the entities. And you have to almost apply game theory to it and how things could look in the future and what could play out. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think a lot of people that sort of come to us say they've seen other projects use a Cayman Foundation. And so they, you, know, you get the email, hey, such and such recommended you. We need a foundation. And then you sort of like, why? And they're like, I don't know. Someone said I need one. And then you sort of start getting into the weeds on the, on the governance and control. And it really just opens a can of worms. And you know, there's usually a pretty thorough exercise to work through how should this work. And another sort of wrinkle to that is a lot of projects will be setting up a foundation before they have a token and before they have a community and things like that. And so trying to envisage when they might want token holder control to take over when they don't yet have an engaged community is quite interesting versus other projects we've helped recently where they've got a DAO with no legal wrapper or no entity, but they've got a distributed token group and people that are engaged. And so the exercise is different and the way you think about it is different because you already know that it's probably okay to just basically put all of the control into the DAO or token holders because you have that group versus other projects like, well, hey, we're a year out from minting a token. How do we want to structure this? So yeah, it's fascinating. Two follow-up questions on that, Chris. One is with regard to timing. How do you advise or how should builders think of when the right time is to set up a foundation, to set up a BVI entity, to, to go through this process? Because, you know, there's pros and cons of doing it earlier rather than later. I assume before anything's issued should be the time to speak to a lawyer at least. Yeah. I mean, there's a variety of factors. A lot of the time there's 
a lot of recent projects have done this. There's a pre-funding round or, you know, there's a, there's a need to do some fundraising. And often they would, you know, the team would want to use the offshore structure for a private token sale or a, it might be an equity round, but with a token warrant or something like that. And so often there'll be a need to have the structure in place for fundraising before you might need it for protocol or before a token is actually ever minted. So it really depends on where, the, I guess, where the team are. Obviously, the sooner you set it up, the, the sooner you start incurring costs, you know, legal costs, but also, you know, if you need local directors or things like that, that comes at a cost. So it's a bit of a balance. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of best to set it up when you need it and maybe not much earlier, but there may be other non-Cayman factors, for instance, that drive setting it up earlier or holding off, you know, tax or regulatory or things like that. So on that point, and Considering the non-Cayman, non-BVI ramifications of the token issuance and who the sale is made available to, et cetera, how do you advise projects or how should people be thinking about navigating the ramifications on the rest of the world? Because if these tokens are issued publicly, they could be accessible by anyone and therefore that could have implications everywhere in the world. So it's a very broad scope to be considering. How do you think about navigating that? Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. And what a lot of people don't realize, you know, they might have heard, oh, BVI company can issue a token, doesn't need to be regulated, which is true for the issuance from the BVI. It doesn't mean anything about where you issue to. You know, (laughs) the USSCC, I suspect, doesn't care what the BVI thinks about whether a token should be regulated, you know, and other jurisdictions similarly. So, yeah, I mean, I would always say to teams, they always should have, depending on where they are, legal advice in that jurisdiction. So if it's a US-based team, definitely they want to have US counsel involved to help them navigate the project generally, but also particularly around token sales and whether that they just have to exclude the US or what they do. And and you know, so typically it would just be making sure if the team is in one place that they at least have advice there. And then if the team's distributed, it gets more complicated because obviously you don't necessarily want to take advice everywhere because it's very expensive. And some projects, I think, take a v- take sort of a view that you know they'll focus on US and other places where there has been regulation or enforcement or things about token sales. So Canada and the US, for instance. But yeah, it's complicated. It's one of the things we can't advise on is you know the extent to which an airdrop into the US might be fine or might not be fine, even if it's fine from Cayman or from BVI. Yeah, it's an interesting interplay, right? To say it's fine here, but there could be consequences elsewhere in the world. And we can help you find someone to talk to on that, but we can't advise on that just because that's not what we specialize in. There's quite a few paths we could go now. We've opened a few can of worms. Yeah, I think one thing I just wanted to talk about was with regard to building offshore and setting up this structure. Besides the legal considerations we've spoken about when it comes to securities regulation and things like that, are there other considerations that projects should be thinking about more, mistakes that you've seen people make, common questions that you see come up with regards to this structure? Yeah, I mean, the main one that comes up, it it tends to be around control, the offshore structure, because I think a lot of people think, and this is no criticism on them, they just haven't had the need to know until now, but okay, let's set up a Cayman Foundation we're in the US, we'll just be the directors of that foundation. And, you know, and then find out, no, that's not going to work because that's still going to expose you to you know, US tax or US regulatory concerns, things like that. And so one of the, the sort of main things that goes, I guess, back to a point I mentioned before around control is you know, teams need to think about, okay, if, gonna, if there's going to be an offshore structure that truly is independent from the team, how is that going to be controlled? And thinking through, do they need directors around the world? Do they need local directors? How's that all going to come together? 
Okay. And do you overlap between the work you do in NFTs? You mentioned them earlier. It's a bit of a gray area. I think that remains the case in most places in the world where there are times where it can look like an investment contract and it gets into murky water when it comes to securities regulatory implications. What are you seeing in terms of NFTs when it comes to Cayman and BVI law? And is there anything potentially on the horizon or what are the interpretations that you're seeing now? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess I mentioned it. A little bit before, but the reason NFTs are interesting is in Cayman or BVI, the definition of virtual asset is basically some asset that can be traded or transferred. So NFTs, we're going to take that box, but it needs to also be something that can be used for investment or payment purposes. And so, you know, it's always been a little unclear whether NFTs as a group or some NFTs would fit that definition or be, would be with outside of it. And obviously, as you'll appreciate, there's a range of NFTs from CryptoPunks and Bored Apes to a skin for your character in a game. Right. I think those probably have a different regulatory treatment, but it's not clear. And so, you know, we've always been quite conservative, I think, on that to sort of say, if you're going to sell 10,000 of these NFTs, there's a good chance it'll be a virtual asset for, and then you've done an issuance. Obviously, if it's a BVI entity, even if it's a virtual asset, it's probably okay because of the issuance point. But there's recent guidance from the Financial Action Task Force, which I guess is the basis for the frameworks out here in terms you know, they provided the original definitions that have been adopted. They came out with guidance recently to, base, to say something along the lines that typically they wouldn't consider an NFT to be a virtual asset, but it may be. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, I think we're still exactly where we were in the sense that maybe you take a view that, you know, there's a chance they're not, but if it, I guess where it would sort of be likely to be considered a virtual asset is if the NFT had utility or governance rights or, or things like that. But if it's a pure, you know, ETH rock, there's a picture of that. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't, I could buy that not for investment purposes. It's not for payment purposes. And then there's a funny thing too, is like, if I pay $400,000 for a ETH rock, it starts to look like it might be for investment purposes. But if I bought it for a dollar when it was first minted, that's a sort of interesting dynamic. I don't know how that plays out. It's not tested in, in Cayman or BVI. And it's difficult because it goes to the state of mind for the mm. purchaser. Yeah. Yeah. It's right? very when subjective. You- it is. And when you buy a security, you don't get an accompanying piece of art that you can hang up on your wall. When you buy an NFT, that's all you're getting is not necessarily art, but that's just one form of word covering is like NFTs in art form. There are obviously many other use cases for them. But when it comes to generative art and the 10,000 character projects, those, you know, if you try to go too far into why the purchaser is making that decision, to me, it's trying to force something to fit into a regime that isn't suited for it. And maybe there is an investor protection side of NFTs. There are concerns when it comes to promoting projects and rug pulls and things like that. So I think a regime will be needed, Something, some guidance, something will be needed. But for now, securities regulation doesn't seem to be the right fit there. No. And I mean, it's interesting too, because I think some of the guidance talks about NFTs being sort of non-fungible and non-interchangeable. But if you have 10,000 that are almost exactly the same, you know, I don't know if that pushes you towards it being fungible. Well, that's the best part of the space because the questions are so difficult to resolve and they toe the line very well. And I find that a lot of credit goes to the builders for being able to think of clever new ways to issue digital scarcity in a way that toes that line. There will be some exciting things in the future. And I believe DAOs will play a big role. Like you now have the opportunity to work collaboratively around the world in a token incentivized way without needing to rely on 
one party in that issuance like you had what you would have with a company where someone's tracking the cap table and who owns what shares and everything. Now you can do this all in a very transparent way. How do you see DAOs proliferating in the future? Are there any interesting use cases you've seen? I'd love to hear your thoughts, Chris, on, on DAOs generally and then the legal side that you're seeing. We did talk about them a bit earlier with the foundation model or anything, but I'd love to turn it over to you, hear your thoughts on DAOs and how you're seeing them proliferate in the BVI and Cayman. Yeah, I guess we see them more in Cayman. I mean, there's often a BVI element, but because there's no BVI foundation per se, it's usually sort of the Cayman is the closer connection to the DAO. But I mean, the, the interesting thing, you know, over the last few years, we've helped to set up quite a few DAOs and, and foundations and things like that. Some of those are now maturing and are operating and have governance and have stewards and you know, things are going for votes. And I mean, it's completely fascinating. And, and you know, we're now a lot of our projects that have been around for a while, the DAO sort of projects, we're getting requests from directors of the foundation to advise them as to whether they can approve something voted on. And, you know, here's a link to the proposal that's been approved. And so it's very fascinating. And a lot of these things were set up quite quickly. And maybe the governance wasn't really thought through as well as it could have been. But I think that was just the state of the state of play when some of these things were set up. But things that just hadn't been thought about in terms of what if a council member resigns and then you look at the bylaws and it doesn't cover resignation or, and you have all these fascinating legal questions coming up and obviously that helps us to put together better documents going forward and thinking through trouble spotting or getting ahead of some of the issues that you've seen other projects encounter but i'm super bullish on DAOs. i don't think everything should be a DAO. i don't think everything needs a governance token but i can really see some of these really important infrastructure projects and other projects decentralized media and all sorts of you know, interesting use cases where a DAO model makes sense. But yeah, definitely not everything a DAO. Agreed. And so many DAOs are just DAO in name only, and they operate like a traditional organization or company or unincorporated association would. When it comes to DAOs and stipulate, the dynamic I always find interesting is when you tie in on-chain action with off-chain action, right? And you need to have some sort of nexus there, something in place that references it. And it's interesting because if you think of something like email or digital signatures through DocuSign or other methods, those you can make th those are purely digital, but you can make like what's typically happened is we interpret those and act based on those, right? If directors sign a resolution electronically, that resolution is passed. How does that dynamic work from a DAO perspective through the foundations in Cayman? What is the nexus? What is the contractual arrangement? What happens there? Yeah, so it depends on how the foundations have been set up. Like some of them will be set up and they will literally say the DAO will be defined in some way and there'll be DAO resolution as defined. And so then it might be directors can be appoint, appointed or removed by DAO resolution. And so then there'll be some mechanism whereby a vote of the DAO is communicated to the directors and that may force them to act or may guide them to act. It really depends on how the documents are structured. But there's some things that happen on chain and don't really need the foundation to sign off, you know, like protocol upgrades or things like that, that might not necessarily require the legal off chain entity to do something. But other things, opening a bank account or engaging a developer or contracting with a centralized exchange for a token offering or, you know, all those sorts of things do need the legal entity. And so a lot of the time it's, I guess, working out, can a director of a foundation do this thing on their own or do they need to be, you know, does it need to go to a 
full DAO vote. Because one of the things you, you sort of see practically as a problem is some things should go to a full DAO vote. Some things definitely shouldn't go to like administrative minus stuff. And so it's sort of being quite careful to sort of draw the lines around, well, what are the things that we really want the community to decide on? And what are the things we are happy for the directors who are acting professionally to sort of get on and do? But yeah, there's always, there always needs to be a link between the sort of the token holder votes of the DAO and the action the director might then need to take. And then thinking through, because obviously you could have a proposal that's crazy, you could have a the community approve that proposal, which is crazy, and then it might be presented to the director to say, hey, here's this crazy thing, can you sign the resolution and the documents? Um, and then they come to us and we've had, I won't say what project, but we've had this where it was in relation to a grant and then it turned out that the grantee was not someone we wanted to make a grant to. And so the director was then in a sort of rock and a hard place because this proposal had gone through. The community had done it and there was a sort of a way to say, well, we don't consider that this is actually necessarily legal for the foundation to do this. And so, but so there's, there's a, so a, can be some funny dynamics. And you can tell you're a good lawyer. You started the answer with it depends, right? And I think yeah. it really does <laughs> it depend. It really does depend, yeah. So then when you say it, it references the on-chain activities, would this be looking directly at the blockchain itself using a block explorer? Is there typically a very technical approach to that? No, I mean, usually it's something like snapshot for DAO voting. So it'll be you know, like the maker forum or something like that. It's a pretty good analog. So, you know, someone will put up a proposal, it will go to a vote, and then someone will communicate that. I mean, ideally, the directors are monitoring that forum. And I think now they are, and partly to get ahead of proposals that are not good, that might be about to go live, you know, that might might cause them difficulty if they get approved. Yeah, it's a learning experience. And I find the law, if you look back throughout history, it's so reactive. It typically doesn't. And it's better, I think, that it is that way to learn from mistakes and build rather than preemptively try to guess every potential issue that could come up and then prescribe laws that could be overly restrictive. So I think we're moving in the right direction. It's just a big learning curve for everybody in the space. I wanted to touch on Guernsey Trust, and I know you practiced in Guernsey for a bit. You no longer practice there, but I thought you could give a high-level overview of what Guernsey Trusts do and why crypto businesses have chosen to utilize them. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, and you're right. I was in Guernsey for sort of seven years, but I haven't been there for a while now. So some projects have used a Guernsey Purpose Trust instead of a Cayman Foundation. And so basically you can have a Purpose Trust, which can have charitable or non-charitable or mixed purposes. And so you could, in theory, have a trust where it holds assets to further a protocol or ecosystem, just like a Cayman Foundation, but it operates slightly differently than the foundation. You know, foundation is its own legal entity. Trust, it contracts through the trustee, so it's slightly different in that way. You can also have, for a Guernsey Trust, but also for a Cayman Foundation, you could, in theory, have token, the class of token holders from time to time as beneficiaries of the trust if you wanted to. You don't typically see that, but you could, in theory. So I think Guernsey is just a, the Guernsey Purpose Trust is just a different option that sometimes is a better fit for a variety of reasons. I mean, often you end up with a Guernsey purpose trust, but the trustees are actually outside of Guernsey. And that's what it is that, you know, be, there'll be regulatory attacks and other things that sort of are in play there. But there's obviously been a few sort of fairly big projects that have used a Guernsey Trust, DX, I think, and others. Terra, I think, used a Guernsey Trust as well. So that's maybe not the best example. But so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, it's just another tool in the toolbox. And we see them, they're far less common than Cayman Foundations, but they do come up from time to time. And sometimes it's, you know, the underlying business activity might be better suited in a trust versus a foundation, or, you know, there may be some reason for that. But yeah, I would say it's sort of less common, but, you know, still obviously worth considering. 
It does depend. And there's so many factors that go into the projects and what they, where they want to choose to build and what token they want to offer. If they want to offer a token, what services they're doing. There's a myriad of factors there. Last question for you regarding the offshore approach. And I'm sure there are many common misconceptions. And we spoke a little bit about the surprising things and commonly asked questions. But if you were building a crypto-focused business, what would be considerations you had whether or not you were building offshore? Yeah, I guess a lot of it depends on where the team are that are developing the thing, how mobile they are. You know, for instance, Cayman has a special economic zone, which a lot of crypto companies have set up in Chainlink and other Aave and others have sort of you know, actually have a physical presence down here. And if the team are mobile, you know, that can be a good option for sort of actually being down here versus engaging professional directors and things. But what I would say is that there's good legal structures that are simple to set up, understandable, recognized outside of Cayman BBI, you know, by importantly, by VCs and investors and things like that versus, you know, there might be some entities and other things in other places, but they're a bit more abstract or obscure that people might not want to invest in that type of structure. The legal frameworks are actually pretty clear. Obviously, there's always going to be nuance and some areas which are not. But you know, for instance, Cayman and BVI both have pretty clear securities regimes, quite narrow. They say what, secu- what are securities and sort of what are virtual assets are the same. So I think you know, it provides a place to, from which to do things where you sort of at least know the regulatory status of, of those jurisdictions. You know, obviously, everyone does it differently. And then the US is its own thing and all of that. But I think it's just, you know, if you're going to pick anywhere, some of these offshore jurisdictions are pretty good. Obviously, they don't levy corporation taxes and income taxes. And so it simplifies, you know, even if, and I would say actually a lot of projects use these structures not for tax benefits, it's for the regulatory and structure and things like that. But it simplifies it not having those because then you don't have the same reporting and record keeping requirements and filings and all those sorts of things. So it's sort of one less administrative hurdle. You know, you may still, the team may still have tax to pay in their own jurisdictions. And, you know, if they're providing services to a foundation and getting remunerated and ha- getting tokens, and you know, they're going to still have all the same stuff. But at least for the entities themselves, um, they shouldn't have taxes. And I was, as, as I was saying to you when we were um, about to go live, I was listening to the Jason Swartz podcast he did, you know, and obviously there are tax implications for DAOs and foundations and things like that. So it's not, you can't completely ignore it, but it tends to be a little simpler. I think that's been fantastic. And all these answers have been helpful. And I appreciate you providing the overview and BVI and Cayman's Guernsey as well. I think everyone listening would echo my thoughts on that. The last question was habits and advice. And I always enjoy the answers to this question because I find the people who join me on the podcast, I look up to, I really admire the work they do. I think they're really smart and hardworking as well and interested in crypto. So they have to be good people, especially compliant crypto. So are there habits that come to mind that you've instilled that have helped you cultivate a successful career? And then the second part of the question is, what advice were you given early in your career that shaped who you have become today? Yeah, I guess my immediate thought, it sort of answers both of those. I mean, advice I got early in my career by a very senior partner at the time was to sort of get up early and start early. And it was something that I adopted. I've actually gone away from it now. I, I've got a little kid and I just can't, I can't get up at the same time as I used to. But I mean, for my, I don't know, first 10 years of my career, I was probably up at 5am and working. I'd get up, I would straight away log in and doing three hours of work before anyone else is even really up and thinking about work gives you, not that I treat it as a competition, but it does give you almost a superpower to have that extra time. Yeah. 
obviously a lot of people would say, yeah, but you're cutting sleep and that's not a good thing. And I tend to agree with that as well. But yeah, I think getting up early was something that really, I think, helped me. It just it was never sort of rushed for the day. Um, whereas, you know, if you start a little later and you come in and you've had 70 emails overnight, you were behind from the day before, phones ringing, you've got meetings, all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, having had those few hours to clear the deck, so to speak, is, is something that, you know, I, I definitely found very valuable earlier in my career. And, and, and then Chris, I guess, just to jump in on that one before you get to the second point, when you were getting up that early, could you walk through what those hours looked like? Because I think people could wake up early, but if you're just making breakfast or you're not as productive, were there any things that you structured in that time to tackle the day and to give yourself a good head start? I mean, it was pretty basic, to be honest. It was literally get up, brew a coffee, log in and start working. And this was before my now wife she would still be in bed till seven eight o'clock or whatever so it would just be completely quiet in the house just get in the zone you know quite and if i had sort of difficult tasks that sort of clarity first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. was a good time to focus on just something's been hanging over you you know at the time i was a litigator so you had to write a skeleton argument or submissions for court or something like that that was the time to nail those types of bigger tasks. Yeah, I think it is such a benefit to wake up early. And I've noticed that quiet time when emails aren't coming in consistently, you're able to focus in a way that the rest of the day isn't really permitting, especially when you have meetings and you're jumping on calls and things like that. So I know you had a second point you wanted to add. Yeah, and I guess the other thing, and this wasn't necessarily advice. Well, I guess it was advice. I think I probably picked this up from like a Tim Ferriss book or something, but getting comfortable being uncomfortable, um, well, I think is a good thing for a lawyer. Because you're going to get a ton of different instructions from different clients with different needs, different timing, new regimes come up, crypto appears, you know, a virtual assets regime is import, brought into force. So this, this being comfortable, being uncomfortable is, is a good thing. And also, I guess in the same sort of train of thought is trying new things, just being willing to, you know, just completely pivot. And, you know, I've, I'm sure there's negatives of this approach too, but I spent the first five years of my career as commercial corporate lawyer. And then I went complete 180 and became a litigator, having not done any litigation. And then I switched to like private client type work. And then I switched to crypto. And I think you pick up different skills along the way. It gives you quite a broad skill set. Whereas I think a lot of people would never do five years as a corporate lawyer and then go, I'm just going to be a litigator and start from square one. So yeah, obviously, if I just stayed a corporate lawyer, I would have been a better corporate lawyer now, but I wouldn't have seen litigation and understand that in a corporate context, when something is likely to turn into a claim or not. You know, I've obviously a very good sense of that. Whereas if I just never practice as a litigator, I would, the moment something got sort of contentious, I would just rope in the litigators. Yeah, that, that's so, yeah. the trade-off. That's the trade-off, right? And I've just seen when you come at it from the corporate side, you don't see necessarily the end results. You see the initial and you do the negotiation. But what happens on the litigation side? Unless you're privy to those meetings, you have a litigation team, you've seen the deals go south or maybe not, but the other side thinks they did, then you don't get that experience. I think sharing your experience from corporate to litigation and to private wealth and crypto, it's a good testament that if you are interested in new things and and you're interested in pivoting your career, you're able to still achieve success. So thank you for speaking with me today and for the great outline, BVI, Caymans and everything. No, very happy to. And can I finish with a plug of sorts that we are hiring for new associates to join our team and so if anyone's interested they can dm me on twitter or or something the only catch is you need to be commonwealth qualified so have to be canadian qualified or uk or australia new zealand but you couldn't be us unfortunately okay we'll link your twitter in the show notes and people can reach out we'll also link everywhere else people can reach out to you thank you chris cheers jacob 